The CT scan was still spinning and the same lady standing beside me, we need to go to theatre and we need to go right now. And I said, am I in trouble? She said, yes. I said, how bad? The worst kind. The day after I was amputated, it was confirmed to me that this was vaccine related. I was the first in the world to survive with this thing called VIT. The numbers are frightening worldwide. What's going to come out over the next two years? The level of propaganda, the lies, the manipulation of the data and the stats. Most people don't think a government and a health industry would do any of these things. We know we can win medically to prove that these things are wrong. We know we can win scientifically to prove that they should be pulled. We know that we can prove that we should be in health support. Well, at the crux of humanity, large sections of our societies are in trouble and we need to come together to try and resolve it. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Alex Mitchell. Alex is a construction worker and musician from Glasgow who was the first ever recorded case of VITT, which I struggled to pronounce the actual medical term, but this is essentially vaccine-induced blood clotting and has ultimately resulted in Alex's leg being amputated. I've known about Alex for quite a while since he was sharing his story quite early on on Twitter. And just in the time that I've known him, he's definitely become a very key spokesperson when it comes to speaking out for the vaccine injured. I think it's really important for us in the freedom community to make sure that we are helping to give a voice to the people who have been vaccine injured. Since, as Alex says in this conversation, we've been screaming very loudly from very early on about how these vaccines are not safe and effective and trying to counter that narrative. And now that that collective sounding of the alarm has been completely vindicated by the number of vaccine injuries that we've seen, I think it's important that as the mainstream media continues to ignore these stories and these individuals, that the freedom community comes together and actually supports them. If we want to build parallel institutions and parallel communities that combat things like the mainstream media, we have to be willing to talk about these issues. And in the absence of them talking about it in the mainstream media, I think it's our role and responsibility to share these stories. So I really want to thank Alex for not only coming on this podcast and sharing his story, but also for all of the courage that he's shown in raising awareness about this issue. If you enjoy the episode, please give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star rating on whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, then welcome. Make sure you give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, that can be done in three ways. The first is via Bitcoin tips. That's both on-chain and by the Lightning Network. You can also buy me a coffee on buymeacoffee.com and links to those are both in the description. And the third way is by listening to this podcast on the Fountain app, which will allow you to stream stats directly. So if you're unfamiliar with Fountain, I really do recommend that you check it out. It's a great way to support the show. And if you're not already familiar with Bitcoin and the Lightning Network, this is a really good opportunity to learn about that as well. Please do consider supporting the show no matter how small it is. I'm really trying to improve the quality and the reach of the show which recently involved buying a domain name and getting Twitter verified so that I can upload longer videos and things like that. So I mean it when I say these donations are highly appreciated and will go directly towards the costs of running the show. All right, on to the episode. All right, Alex, so you have come up on my radar quite a lot and you've, you know, become kind of famous really in the, uh, I guess, like the vaccine injured community, um, if we can call it that. Um, but yeah, I mean, first of all, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for, for coming on. Well, thank you, John. I really do appreciate you reaching out and asking me to, to join your podcast. Um, I, it's strange because I'm just a local lad from the East End of Glasgow 
Um, I never kind of expected to be sitting here where I am today. I didn't set out to be here. I kind of set out to try and find other people like me on social media for to help support each other. And it's kind of ended up here. Um, for many reasons, I will, I would, I'm going to hazard a guess that um, probably the most vocal or most obvious one is that I won't go quiet. I don't see why I should. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what's happened is a huge injustice on a personal level, on a civic level, on a public level, and governmental and legal level. Now, I know, what I know now as, as to what I knew 18 months ago has been the biggest education in my life. I've had to learn so much that I, I'm not designed to learn. I, you know, I, I never had the, the, the desire to learn any of these skills or to be where I'm. You know, so yeah, I find that a very strange place at times. And London at the weekend kind of really brought it home in many ways, um, just how well known some of us are becoming because we're trying to raise awareness and get support and help for, not just for ourselves, but other people that's in the same position. I actually want to go into to all of those things that you've just that you just raised there, including the march and um and and also your perspective on on everything kind of having had this, I guess, eighteen months of of new information and, and kind of being thrust into this world that perhaps you weren't aware of before. But before we go into all of that, I just want to start off with your life before kind of 2020, 2021. And, you know, just, you know, growing up and your background and just, um, you know, your job, et cetera, and just what life was like for you kind of um, before that time. I, I know that you've, you've kind of um, shared this story on, you know, other podcasts and, you know, on, uh, I think it was on the um, Safe and Effective documentary and things like that. But yeah, just, just, you know, for my listeners, if you wouldn't mind just giving a bit of a background as to yourself. A local lad from East End of Glasgow um, brought up with my mum, who brought five of us up on her own, and she worked in bars for 60 years. Very, very clever lady. Um, and it was a hard upbringing in the East End. You know, we, were, we weren't very well, well off. We were classes poor, I suppose, but we were brought up with a lot of love. Um, like any other boy, grew up with aspirations. I wasn't a football baller fan, I wasn't a football person because I wasn't very good at it. Um, I was always the one that nobody picked at the end, you know, nobody wanted me, yeah, he can go the goalkeeper. Um, I freely admit I was the worst football player in the world. Um, I loved boxing and martial arts, that was the things I did when I was young. I boxed to, from about 10 and a half to about 17. I trained and around about 16, I, I kind of started being into martial arts, but not in any great level. And then when I hit my kind of 24, 25, I, I really took off. And I've always looked after my body physically between the training, the boxing and the martial arts. And worked in various jobs throughout my career. Uh, and at the age of 50, I've been into the, well, since the age of sort of a 13, I was into a band called The Jam, um, who have been very successful in the UK. And they were they just caught something in my 
ideals of what I wanted to be when I was old and how I was feeling at the time. And that kind of got me into the, the kind of Northern Soul mod scene. And I've been a mod all my life. What a mod is, is basically someone who loves 60s clothes, drives old Italian Vespers or Lambrettas. Um, it's about a certain attitude and approach to life. So I'm very, people think it's about the, the music, the dancing, the scooters and the clothes. That's the, the peacock or the ego side of it, as I call it. For me, it was a, it's more than just that. It's, it's actually my way of life. Uh, and being a mod is about, you know, if I go out dressed, I wear three-piece suits. From the top to the bottom, everything's all thought out and designed because I want, that's, that's the ego peacock. It's about if you're, if you're going to dress to that kind of level of standard, then everything else in your life has to be set at that level of standard. So when I was 17, I decided that I wanted to set the moral standards, ethics and principles of the kind of man I wanted to be. Now, there's, there's several men in my life that as a young lad, that I, they, they were my, that's who I want to be like if I had that kind of character. And that's basically what I set. And I live by those standards and principles of being the best of, that you can be at all times. I feel like that every single day. But I try every day to change something about me because I believe that's what we're here for. You develop yourself in a human being to be the type of person you want to be. And I think I'd got to the age of 56 at that time. I'd be just come out of being in a band because I've always loved music. My lifestyle um, at the time was I was at gigs or open mic nights four nights a week. Two nights a week I was out in my scooter with my scooter mates and I was home one night a week. So I had a very, very active, busy life. I was a scaffolder, a steel erector, lifted five tonne of steels a day, every day, and didn't break sweat. I was in phenomenal physical shape. So I'd kind of got to that stage in life at 56 where Everything I set out in life to do, I'd done. You know, everybody, I don't, I don't think there's many people that don't grow up and wish secretly, I wish I was in a band. I got that experience. I got to be in a band that became quite successful in the scene that I was in. And it's still going. Um, it just it got too much for me. It, it was doing what started as fun as a one gig a month, every two months became a gig. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, rehearsing on the Monday. It, it just got too much um, for myself personally. Um, so, yeah, I was at that place in life where I, I was content and happy and quite happily being known, as I've always been known, as Alec, Alec the Mod. Alec's the guy that drives the old classic scooters, you know. Um, and when this happened to me, there's an element of, well, you try to take that away from me. And you think that I'm going to just lie here in the mess that you've left me and accept that. And I realised as a young boy that very early on that you're either a fighter or a flighter. And I've just realised it in every way that I've always, as a young lad, I've been a fighter. You know, if I saw injustice, I stood up against it. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, this has just forced me to fight. And it's fighting, first and foremost, it was for help and support for myself. I and mean, when I realised it was, I wasn't just the only guy in the world that this had affected to this level. Now, I, I tried to reach out and 
you know, and that's when you realise this is a bigger problem than you think. Mainstream media censorship and things like that goes on, you know. So you can tell at my life I was in a happy place, very content, um, fulfilled, I suppose is the word. I want to come on to, to to some more of those themes. I just want to, you know, I know that in the in the in in the intro that I've done, uh, you know, I will kind of give a little bit of a brief brief background. But I would like to just kind of get the full story in your in your own words as well, kind of before we move on to some of these other themes, you know, which is just around the time that COVID hit. You know, you were, you were very contented, as you say. You know, you were you were kind of like doing the things that you wanted to do. You were engaging the activities you wanted to engage in, your hobbies, etc. You know, you were you were fulfilled. You had purpose. When when COVID first hit, you know, before you kind of had this this vaccine injury, when when COVID first hit, what what were your thoughts about that? You know, were you afraid? Were you in any way kind of skeptical? What were your general kind of thoughts when when all of that came in? Did you just believe the narrative? Yeah, where were you on that? Well, yeah, if, if we go back to two thousand and twenty, when the whole you know the whole world shut down, there's nowhere in the world that, that you know. The Western world, civilization, everything shut down. It was 24 hours 7 on the TV, radio, newspapers. People were, they were showing you people dying in the street. People were having to say cheerio to their loved ones through a window or on Skype or WhatsApp. And, you know, they were telling us the death figures were going through the roof. We'd just come out of a lockdown. They were talking about putting us into another lockdown, which they eventually did, which I didn't. We, because we were outside workers, construction, we were allowed to work through the second one. And we were hearing stories of people dying all over the place. It was 24-7. Was I afraid for me? That's what I think we all were at one point. Because no one was safe according to these, you know, the mainstream media, the government, you know, uh, so, and in the August in 2020, the lady downstairs from my mum, they'd been neighbours for 20 odd years, had a fall in the house, went into a hospital with a broken leg and didn't come out. She died with COVID. We locked my mother up for the last year of her life as a family. My mother was the most social person I ever met and we locked her away to, to try and protect her. And mentally, in many ways, she wasn't the only one we destroyed a lot of people's mental health. So, yeah, the whole thing, the fear of people were dying. So in March, I received my letter to go and do the right thing. And at that point, we were still in lockdown. It was just the beginning of March. These viruses or vaccines had just been released. And they were going to, you know, government was telling you it was safe and effective. BBC was telling you it was safe and effective. The very week of my vaccination, Matt Hancock stood in the parliament and said they were safe and effective. In fact, his words were they're 100% safe and effective. So you believe what your government's telling you. You believe what the radio's telling you, the TV's telling you, the, the you know, the, the, the newspapers. So I went and did the right thing. I was verbally, I went on the 20th of March and received my first AstraZeneca. I was told verbally at that time, I may receive a sore sight arm or I may receive flu-like symptoms for 48 hours, which I did. I went back to work and being in construction, 
I was back to feeling like my old self. And 11 days later, on the 1st of April, at work, I lifted a rather heavy object and stepped back and thought I'd actually pulled my calf muscles. That's something we pull muscles, hurt ourselves all day, every day. I went home, had a bath, struggled on for a couple of days. And then on Sunday, the 4th of April, I collapsed at home. I was rushed to hospital in an ambulance. And I came to in the hospital and there's a lady saying, we need to go for a CT scan and I need your permission. I've given the permission. The CT scan was still spinning and the same lady standing beside me. We need to go to theatre and we need to go right now. And I said, am I in trouble? She said, yes. I said, how bad? The worst kind. I, I lifted my, I was allowed to phone my wife and two daughters. Unknown to me, they were in a room less than 30 feet away from me. And I had to say goodbye to my wife and two daughters over a telephone. Unknown to me, the same doctor went into the room after my call and explained to my, to my two wife, my wife and two daughters that she had never seen anything like this and that they had no hope. Not that they were giving up, they just had no hope. If I survived, which was highly unlikely, it would be from the waist up. She took me into theatre. I spent seven and a half hours having clutch removed simultaneously from both my, my left leg and my right leg and my lower abdomen. After seven and a half hours, they saved my lower abdomen, my right leg, and I was told that there was a concern over my left leg. Within 15 minutes, it went from a concern to there will be an amputation. At that point, we still didn't know what had happened, why this had happened. We knew nothing. Um, after, as I say, within 15 minutes, it was explained that there would be, would be an amputation. I asked if there was any hope of it being a below the knee amputation. Um, and they brought the, the vascular surgeon in who ultimately did the amputation who I call him my doc from the back to the future because he's got the crazy hair and the big glasses and it just looks like my professor. But he's a lovely human being, so caring. Um, he sat with me for over two hours talking about my life, my passions, my style. And, you know, what? And he answered a lot of questions and a question asked, you know, was there no possibility of it being below the knee? And he said, there's always hope. And I said, I'll take it. And he gave me a week. Well, I thought he'd give me a week because I asked for it. I now realise I didn't get the week because I asked for it. I got the week because I just survived seven and a half hours surgery that I shouldn't have survived. And I wasn't strong enough to survive an amputation at that point. Um, I was left in isolation for an entire week because of the height of COVID. So I was in full isolation. And during the, through the course of that week, I would, that allowed me to try and process some of what was going on, some of it happened. It was now at that point thought that it was possibly vaccine related because at 56, having no underlying health conditions ever, and the only thing in my life that had been different in the last six weeks was the AstraZeneca vaccine. 
a week later on the 11th of April, I went in and to surgery in the hope that it was a below the knee amputation. And sadly, or unfortunately, it, was a, it wasn't possible. It was an above the knee amputation. The day after I was amputated, it was confirmed to me that this was vaccine related. And we were just waiting on the final test results to confirm it. At that point, it wasn't called VIT, which is V-I-T-T, which is short for vaccine-induced thrombiotic thrombothenia. All it was put down was thrombosis, thrombothenia. Um, within eight hours of being amputated, I was in a gym doing parallel on parallel bars, learning to walk again. And I was home within eight days of being amputated because... I asked how long I would be in hospital and what the process was. And they said I could be in hospital for up to three months and it could take me up to 18 months to learn to walk again. That doesn't work for me. And I did say that to them. And they said, but that's our process. And I said, well, take your rule book and throw it out the window. You tell me what I need to do to get out of this hospital and start building what, whatever's left of my life. Um, and within eight days, I was home. Uh, much to the actual shock and surprise of my family and all my friends who had arranged, I get a come welcome home party. They thought it would be another three weeks. And unfortunately, I phoned my wife on, <laughs> on the Tuesday to say I was coming home on the Thursday. So I kind of wrecked all of our plans. I, I need to apologise and make up to my wife the things that I've done to her over the last 18 months. Um, I've, she's been in positions that she's never, ever been put into. And I started the journey at that point because I was told I was the first in the world to survive with this thing called VIT. Um, you were the first in the world to survive from that? With the level of clots in my system that I had. Wow. And did you, did you mention just then, by the way, that it was VIT, but it wasn't put down as VIT. They just put it down as thrombosis. They didn't put it, they didn't mention the vaccine part of it. Interesting. Okay, we'll, they come, didn't because we'll come back that to that. Point, the, well, there, there, there is a reason for that. At that point, VIT hadn't been classified. It wasn't a condition. Yeah, it was, this is a new condition. Is it? So vaccines in the past have never caused clots in this but, way before. This is purely no. a phenomenon of the yes. COVID vaccines. And they had to yes. they had to come up with a new name for that. Wow, I never knew that. Okay, pl yeah. please continue. So what that means, vaccine is just thrombotic thrombothenia. What it does is in your blood, you have white blood cells, red blood cells, hemoglobin and plasma. That's standard. If you go down a level, to your antibodies level, there's a very small antibody called platelet factor four, and it's negative. That's very, very important. That's what keeps your blood the consistency as. So if there's too much, ox too much oxygen in your blood, you die. If there's not enough oxygen in your blood, you clot and you die. That's how vital this little component is. And it's roughly about 96, 97% consistency of your blood. What the AstraZeneca vaccine has done is taken that antibody and turned it positive. And it's became positive PF4. 
Where that becomes a problem is that clotting is a normal defense mechanism for your body. If you bang yourself and you get a bruise, that's actually clotting. It's normal. Your bruise heals up and the, the bruise disappears. That's a clot breaking up. Those clots are made by platelets. The platelets make the clots, which feeds the D-dimer. So you end up with your platelets going down and your D-dimer being elevated. That's normal an indication that there's something going on deep within the blood. And normally at the level that at the beginning, they were looking at this just purely at that level. Nobody was looking at antibody level. And so effectively, my PF4 is positive, which means it's constantly full. I'm a perpetual clotting machine. Effectively, I'm clotting just now as we speak. Um, I'm on a range of medication that's got that stable at the moment. Okay, so so this um, you, you mentioned that that you're that this is still a process that's that's ongoing, basically. So you yes. are having to have medication now to to prevent continued clots. Is there something yes. um, particular? I know we're kind of going a little bit into the weeds of the medical stuff here, so I don't expect you to have an answer for all this stuff. But is there something particular about yourself that makes you more susceptible to this, or is this purely you know? Um, chance, you know, bad, bad luck, you know, so to speak. Like, what is it that means that you have faced this this kind of repercussions from the vaccine that other people might not have? Well, this is the problem. It's not only me. There's 445 cases of VIT in the UK. Sadly, 81 in the fatalities. We have VITs in Canada. We have VITs in Australia. And we have VITs in Denmark. Because that's where AstraZeneca, anywhere yeah. AstraZeneca was used. Sorry. Go. Uh, okay, so it's just an AstraZeneca thing. But yeah, what I, what I mean by that is, obviously, that's still a small number compared to the total number of overall vaccinated. So what is it particularly about that, that group that makes you susceptible, if anything? They don't know. They don't okay. know. Okay. They have, obviously, that's something that they're looking at very closely and have been to see if there's something in a tiny percentage of the world's population that would possibly cause that. But that, so far, right. the answer is no. It's whatever the AstraZeneca vaccine has done to our individual makeup that's affected us. And it's not as if it's unique to me. It could have been just the circumstances. There's, there's so much they don't know. And this is the problem. They don't know what the long-term effects of this are going to be. You can't tell us what the two-year effects are. Well, we can now start to tell them what the two-year effects are. Um, we've got another three years before we actually sort of see the bigger picture of just how many of these effects and how big the numbers affected are. Based on what we're seeing officially as medically certified as vaccine injured, the numbers are frightening worldwide. And this is why I am so vocal about there's a problem here. If you're saying, if everything's indicating there's a problem, there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, th thanks for sharing sharing that um, that story. And you know, obviously, we kind of got to the point. You know, you'd arrive, you'd arrived home, you you know, exceeded expectations for recovery. 
what were your feelings there, you know, arriving, arriving home, going into, you know, a place of familiarity, going back into the place that you live, obviously, you know, now being an amputee and having gone through this uh, entire ordeal, what were your, what were your feelings at, at that point? They still are that even going back to my home that I recognised, it wasn't my home anymore because I'm now in a wheelchair or I'm on walking sticks. I've got stairs, you know, I've got doorways. There's so many different aspects. This affects every single minute aspect of your life. There is nothing in your life that this doesn't affect in any way, shape or form. Everything that you know is out the window because you're having to learn the world differently. And when you go out, that's a, that's a different story altogether. Many people, lovely, most people out there are very kind and compassionate. Some people are damn right rude. Um, they walk in front of you. Now, it's clear you're in a wheelchair. It's clear that they can see you because they're looking at you in your eyes and they walk into your way. It's wee things like that, uh, you know, that's just sort of negative, but it's wee connotations, but there's nothing you can imagine in your life is the same anymore. And I do mean it on every level. So, yeah, it's having to learn a whole new world as well as deal with the trauma of what's happened to you as a human being. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, you know, since then, you've become very prominent in the vaccine injured community i would i would say certainly the most prominent in the in the uk but maybe maybe even internationally how did that come about you know um how did you go from you know just having this injury to so many people knowing your name and knowing your story the honest answer is i don't really know um my explanation is that as i say i was told i was the only person in the world to survive with the level of this thing that i had and i was the first so, yeah, that's rare. It doesn't get much rarer than that. And within two weeks of being released from hospital, I start to see government reports showing, because at this point, VIT had now been classified. This condition, thrombiotic thrombothenia, starting to appear on the yellow card report. And then, obviously, realising that is me, because of the first one, I was a, on the first report, there is seven cases, and the first one is me. I know because my doctor told me, my vascular surgeon, said, you were the first report ever to go in under VIT on the year, you know, that properly, because he, he did it. Um, so I kind of set out to try and find, as I said, the report was suddenly showing 300 people, and that's climbed now to 445. So I... You can't get information from the government of who's been affected, who's not been affected. And I was on Facebook, which were, and I took to Facebook. I had Twitter, didn't use it very much. I had 137 followers. And from, I want to say, around about the 21st, 22nd of April till about the 16th of December, I basically screamed, shouted on social media about what was happening or what was not happening. 
And I don't know what happened around about the middle of December. A tweet that I put out, much the same as any other I had for the previous nine months. It just seemed to catch people's imagination. And I went from 137 followers to about 9,000 in a weekend. And it's just constantly... What was the tweet? Do you mind... Do you mind um... I'm obviously not asking you to recite it word for word, but is it your pinned one? Yes, yeah, so it's pinned one on the 4th of April, I collapsed at home, and it's a double double tweet. As I said, there was nothing in my mind about that tweet that was any different from hundreds of others I'd put out the previous nine months, trying to get people, trying to make connections, you know, people that like government ministers, cabinet ministers, MS, mainstream media, Post tagging them and asking them to help and support. Which, you know, can anybody? And it, this one just seemed to catch the imagination. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've always been very much a case of, well, the only way I can get my story out is if I tell it. Do you mind if I if I read that tweet now? Just just obviously for people people listening, sure. it, you know, it sure. might be interesting for them to to hear that tweet. So the tweet was. I think it was on the 20th of January, 2022, that you you posted this. And it says, on the 4th of April, 2021, I collapsed at home 14 days after my first AZ jab. I'm here when I shouldn't be. I lost my left leg from above the knee and I have numerous other things going on, all from the vaccine. I was really fit and healthy person with no underlying health issues. And then you followed that up with, all this has been confirmed in writing by the hematology team at is it Haymares University? Haymares University (laughs) Hospital and has been medically classified as VIT, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombitopenia. Is that right? Yeah. It took me three weeks to learn how to say it, so you're doing well. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I I need another three weeks. The UK government have done nothing to support me and others like me yet. V-I-T-T till I die. Um, Interesting that you mentioned that the UK government has done nothing to support me. What's the situation like there now? Has that has that changed at all since you posted that tweet? All that's changed is it took me 10 months to receive basic state benefits in the UK, which consisted of a thing called PIT, which is effectively a disability payment, and another benefit called employment support allowance. And because I've worked all my life, I get contributed, so all my national insurance have helped towards it. So I get a that's that's it took me 10 months to get that it took me 15 months for the uk government to finally accept and acknowledge i'm the first living person in the uk to be awarded the vaccine damage payment scheme which is a one-off award it's not a compensation scheme of 120,000 pounds there is no sliding level and you have to prove that it was most likely to be caused by a vaccine and you have to prove that you're at least 60% disabled. And you have no idea the ring around and the carnage and the chaos that I went through to receive that. I fought with MPs, MSPs. I raised so many arguments about this and I wanted a full review and I still do that I actually got to the stage where I was now dialoguing, liaison with number 10 Downing Street. We'd wrote letters to Boris Johnson. That's how far that this had got. And if I and I say this, if I was the only person to get through this with the vaccine damage payment scheme, it's a mess. It's bad. 
I can I can give you hundreds of names that are all experiencing the pushback. Now, there's 3,000 claims in the UK just for these three vaccines alone in the last two years, two and a bit years. They have paid out 30. The claims are going up by 50 a week. They've paid out 30 in six months. I think they've processed 400 claims or something in six months. It'll take them 10 years to process the claims I've got. People like me don't have 10 years. And £120,000 for the life of your wife, your son, your daughter, or your husband, or your mother, or your father, is an absolute slap in anyone's face. £120,000 for the loss of a limb, the loss of a life, a career, is a slap in the face. It's not about the money. But I don't have... I now need a house that needs fully adapted. I'm not working. I'll never work again. I can't work because my blood's that unstable that no employer will insure me. Because if I get cut, there's a high chance I'll die. So, therefore, how am I supposed to provide? I have a mortgage, but I don't have now. That's what the £120,000 did for me. It saved my home. I was two days away from losing my, my home. I know people that have lost their home, their business, their family, their job, and their health. And the government still don't think there's a problem. And that's where the frustration comes. People say I'm rare. And I say, okay, I'll accept I am rare. Knowing that you have accepted that I am rare, what is it that you've put in place to help people like me? those rare cases, and the answer's nothing, and they're still doing nothing. So, yeah, it's became a personal fight that's became very loud. Um, I never set out to be, uh, yeah, you're right, I, I, I've got some strange friends now, friends that I've never thought I would ever be friends from all over the world, and some of these people are the bravest, most courageous, compassionate, people I've ever met, and all of them are facing death. These people are the heroes, the warriors, the lionesses and the lions, and the inspiration that the world want to look at. Because I'll tell you, there's very few people that can cope with what we are going through. Because nothing like this ever been done in history. We're in no man's land. You know, we get it from the pro-vaccine because we're complaining about a vaccine. We get it from the anti-vaccine because we took a vaccine. We get it from mainstream media because they label us as misinformation and conspiracy theories. Now, the Rolling Stone magazine online has put a front page picture of me and called me a conspiracy theorist, an anti-vaxxer. This is what I deal with every day and I have done for 18 months and I'm not alone. You ask why I'm so passionate and so vocal about this. I've lost nine people in the last two years to suicide. That doesn't sink in to anybody in this planet. They really, and a lot of it has came from not just what the governments are doing in their own countries, in their own mainstream media, 
from the general public thinking they could say with the lighty people like me and that they walk away from it. I'm sorry. You've called the wrong guy. You come for me, you're going to get me coming back for you. I'm not here. So I was going to... I'll be honest with you. The way I was going to say it, John, is, and I'll finish with it, is that mm-hmm. see when you've, you've been told that you're not going to open your eyes again and you open your eyes again, you realise there is absolutely no fear in this world. You've got nothing to fear. And these, these people have took everything, and I mean everything. So I've got nothing to lose anymore. Do you think I'm going to go away quietly? No, I'm not. Sorry, you were going to ask me something. No, that was uh, that was powerful. I'm glad. I'm glad that you continued. So, I, I just wanted to to actually kind of push on that point a bit further, which is you know this kind of community aspect of it, and this you know what I've kind of noticed <clears throat> is that there's this there's a kind of an alliance, um, almost a bit of a strange alliance, but it makes complete sense between the kind of people who were who are in the freedom community and the vaccine injured community, it seems to me, and I, and I do want to, you know, I don't want to necessarily say this without, um, you know, getting some feedback on it, because obviously, I, I, you know, I'm not part of the kind of vaccine injured community myself, but it seems to me that the only people who are actually integrating with the vaccine injured, talking to them, hearing their stories, sharing their stories, et cetera, trying to shine some light on it is the freedom community. It seems like the, you know, the institutions who have caused the damage, um, you know, who are actually, the enemies of the of the freedom community, you know, the governments and the people who were pushing this stuff and, and kind of like creating this atmosphere of fear, they have seemingly, to me, left the vaccine injured, you know, without a voice. Whereas the freedom community has have been the people to say, okay, you know, we, you know, we hear you, you know, we want to share your stories, we we want to to get justice for that. Is that something that you've noticed? And how do you how do you kind of, um, I guess, consider this whole alliance between the vaccine injured and the freedom community and how that's interacting? Uh- I totally see how that, in a certain way, is a perception, and it's understandable to a certain extent. And in many ways, I think you're probably right, because for a lot of the freedom people who were very against these vaccines from the very beginning, we're the very evidence that proves their case, doesn't it? So in, in some ways, we are exactly what they've been looking for for years. There's the evidence. You can't deny it. These things are not safe. So, yeah, to a certain extent, and what's been nice is while some of them have different fights, shall we say, um, they've collectively realised that we know that our fight is to get help and support for the vaccine injured and bereaved. Does that include having a freedom of speech? Of course it does, to a certain element. We need that freedom of speech and they support us in that by giving us a voice and asking us to do go to certain rallies and things like that, which I have done. Um, because there's n- the, the principle of freedom of speech, I don't, you know, it doesn't change in, from what country you're in. You've got the right to have your voice. Um, I think everyone's labelled them as nutters, activists, and all the rest of it. I'm sorry, what I've found for most, somebody that's passionate about whatever the subject, if it be freedom of speech or vaccine stops or whatever, most of these people are very well educated and have a very good argument. You know, and I found that I've been called an anti-conspiracy theorist, an anti-vaxxer, all the rest of it, or a vaxxer, whatever you name it, 
I'm labelled with them anyway. So why should I just take what the public's, so-called general public's perception of someone else when the general public's perception of me is something I get upset about? So I tend to find that I talk to people and if I can trust you, I can trust you. If I can't, I can't. If we can work together, we don't have to have 100% the same beliefs to have a common fight. But what is what we have made very clear is how can I possibly support any other campaign other than fight 100% with everything I've got just to get help and support for me and other people like me first and foremost? Any other argument that I have in my head, any other passion you know that I want to go down, that's part to a second. The only thing that's important here is help and support for the vaccine injured and bereaved. And anything that waters that message down, then I'll not be part of, if that makes any sense. You know, it's not, be, it's just, maybe it's a case of me winning, no, us vaccine injured and bereaved trying to win the fights we know we can win. We know we can win medically to prove that these things are wrong. We know we can win scientifically to prove that they should be pulled. We know that we can prove that we should be help support. Stick to the basics. Mm-hmm. And then we can deal with the other arguments later on. First and foremost, for me, is I need to stop people. Di- I want people to stop dying. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see another single human being on this planet go through a quarter of what I went through in the 18 months. Because I will be honest with you, I'm not sure how I've coped with it. Mm-hmm. I certainly know many people that haven't. And I speak to psychologists on a regular basis, understandably, because I've now got, <laughs> I'm clinically, I've got clinically, I've got anxiety, I'm clinically depressed, and I've clinically got PTSD. Well, why would that possibly be? What makes you think, why would I be unhappy about my life? Um, so that's my burning goal desire. Help support for me and other vaccine injured and bereaved. Stop these things and stay away from children. They're the only three fights that I continue and I won't stop them. And we've, you know, we've seen not only a continuation of the vaccine campaign. I mean, my, my belief is this continuation of the vaccine campaign when in the face of all of this evidence of excess deaths of, you know, strokes and clots and other vaccine injuries, it, it, it's my it's my belief, and I'd, I, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. That they've continued with it purely because to to cease continuing with it means an admission that these things weren't safe and effective. So they're kind of trying to seemingly quietly, um, you know, do away with some of them. Like the the AstraZeneca vaccine now, I think that you have to ask for it. It still exists, but you have to ask for it. You will never be given it by default, etc. It seems like they're trying to just very slowly and quietly phases things out, but without making a, an admission that they weren't safe and effective. Is that also your um, kind of perspective on that? Yeah, very much. Um, I think what the, the, the way I'm looking at it is that the first license, Emergency Use Act license, comes up on February of this year, and the other ones come in between February and August. Now, the whole, whole world now knows mm, these are not safe and effective. People go on about yellow card in the VAR system. What they forget is that it's the governments that set those systems up, not the public. So if you want to criticise it, you criticise the government. This is the system they set up specifically for this. And funnily enough, 
that's the system that they quote. The MRHA follows, monitors the yellow card reporting system to look for signals and all the rest of it. So th their own talk dams themselves. You can't come out and say that's our official program and how we monitor these things and then call it crap. You designed it, you implemented it, you said that was the best results. People give these a bad reason. All these, I'm not saying, no one has ever said in 18 months that every single adverse reaction, serious adverse reaction, death on the yellow card report are vaccine related. Not one single human being has said that. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the numbers that are on that tell you that there's a problem that should be looked at. If I can tell you there's 81 deaths to one condition and 445 victims of it, 505 victims of another condition and five deaths to that, and that's just two conditions. Every other medical product in the planet has been pulled for that. And that's just two of these conditions. You know, so therefore, I now go, okay, given the, the numbers of these reports that we can clearly see that are official, because I don't quote data that I make up, I use official figures. There's a problem here, and you're not looking at it. So therefore, is this about health? No, it's about wealth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that seems very obvious now. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, that's kind of in a way what I was getting at before about this, um, the kind of alliance between the vaccine injured and the, the freedom community is that, you know, the vaccine injured are very aware that there is serious problems with this vaccine. And the kind of freedom community were already suspicious that this was, you know, not yeah. about a virus and it was not about health, etc. Both routes almost seem to come to this exact same place. They, they almost both seem to come to this place of, well, it's not about health. If we know that all of this is happening... Um, you know, that it can't be about health if they're continuing this. So it's hard, I guess, to be a skeptic of the the vaccine. And obviously, if you're if you're vaccine injured, you're, you're naturally going to be, you know, a skeptic of at least this vaccine. It's hard then not to kind of go that extra step and say, well, what is this about? Right. Yeah, there's so many, you know, um, in many ways, I suppose people like me, and people with like other vaccine injured believe that have been whatever reason or whatever term you want to say has put them in the public eye for one of certain. We are the public's I told you so is in many ways. So I can understand, and as I say, those that are going to fight for the freedom speech, which is a right thing to do, and I support them in all of that. Um, and they have supported us very kindly in many ways. But they understand that if we if we water down our fight, we've got less chance of winning it. If we stick to what the bare facts, well, we know that this vaccine is a killer. We know it's harming yeah. people. Stick to that. That fight, you win sure. that fight, it gives credence to your next fight. And that's kind yeah. of, I think, They've understand that while we could go down so many different roads that, that would get us labelled fully as conspiracy theorists and in the mainstream media, we have to stick to what we know about the fight that the fight is help support the vaccine and breathe. And if you came tomorrow and says to me, there's twenty five million pounds for you to change where you're going, 
the answer would be no, because I'm not changing from help the vaccine injured and bereaved first and foremost. After that, stop the vaccines and stop giving them to children. And see when I've achieved those three things, I've then got 820 people in the UK that have been waiting 12 years to get an answer from the vaccine damage payment scheme for issues to medical products before this thing happened in the last three years. And, you know, mm. there's so many fights that you look and go, hold on a minute. This has been like this for 60 years. And it's only because of one thing and one difference, and that is what we're on just now, social media. The internet mm. has allowed the world to realise there's so many of us around the world. I can give you, so there's a family that maybe their son took a massive reaction to any medical product. They go through the yellow card system, they go through the, the vaccine damage payment system. And because there's only one or two of them, they have no voice, nobody listens to them. That's the only benefit of the numbers of these people that are fought. There's too many of us to hide us now. Mm -hmm. I'm in a far better place than them. I've got a voice. People are recognising that voice. These people have been fighting for 12, 15 years with no voice. They're not any different from me. It's just because I had to get hurt with one of these three novel vaccines. You know, it doesn't make it right that these people should be ignored. So, yeah, I've got more fights than the one. And that's not what I set out to be. But I've realised that if I've always said it's if you do the right thing for the right reasons, for the right results, then me just fighting for me and fucking off, isn't it that, is it? Because it's not about me. Yeah. Sorry, I keep ranting. I keep ranting. No, that's all, that's all right. <clears throat> I do want to come on to the um, the march that you just had in London. I mean, I, I don't live in uh, the UK anymore. I, I live in Mexico. So I only kind of saw this on social media. So I don't know too much about it. Do you mind kind of telling me, you know, I'm guessing it was at the weekend. I think it was Saturday, was it? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Do you mind just telling me, like, you know, how that kind of came into being and, you know, what, you know, how many people were there, what types of people were there and what the main message was? Sure. The, the event was called Truth Be Told and it was a campaign that was organised and put together over the month of January. It was kind of started around, I want to say, late October, November. It was the first time I was approached by some people who are interested in doing, raising some kind of awareness. And obviously it kind of started from just one event to a month's event. And we did one in Glasgow, uh, sorry, we did one in Edinburgh. We did one in Birmingham, Bristol. Uh, we're doing one in Manchester this weekend. And basically it was the truth be told. And it's all solely about the vaccine injured and bereaved having an, an opportunity to have their voices heard. Um, and London, I, I'm not going to lie, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like. Um, there was people, it was opened up by a lady that ran, it was a lady called Fiona, um, Fiona Rose Diamond, as we call her. She she set up a few rallies. She was a, an events organiser in a previous front life obviously outdoor events. So when COVID came along, she lost her job because there was no no one working. And she has been part of the freedom movement to a certain extent, putting on various campaigns in the past. But she was very honest about the campaigns that she'd done in the past and that fact 
that she said this would only be about vaccine injured and bereaved. And that kind of works it along. And I'm very much a case of over the last 18 months, I've had many, many people say they're going to do certain things. Not all of them with bad intentions. Um, and for not all nefarious reasons, they very rarely do so. People have good intentions. But this lady says she was going to do something and everything that she said she's done, she was going to do, she's done. And it culminated on Saturday. We had Matt Letizia, who played for Southampton, was a world-known football player. We had John Bowe, who's a world-known actor. We had Mark Sharman, who was a producer and director of Safe and Effective, A Second Opinion, the documentary that I was in. Uh, and we had most of the vaccine injured that were in the documentary. And we had about 15 or 16 other vaccine injured who were happy or wanted to tell the world their story. And it was to let the world know that we are suffering. We're suffering in a way that humanity has never suffered before. Because nobody's ever been in this position before. But everybody hates you. Where you got it, where you didn't, you got it, the public hate you, you know, official them hate you, media hate you. You become this prior nobody wants to talk to or nobody wants to acknowledge. I've had people say to my face, when I, you know, what happened to you? And I lost my life to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Nah, really? Why would I make something like that up? Now, that's just general public in the street. So you can imagine... And that's why I, I'm very passionate about suicide, suicide awareness. We have so many people that's needing psychological support. That is the biggest problem we have right now, is we don't have enough psychological support. Because if you've got a trauma going on in your life and it's denied, that becomes depression. If that trauma and depression is not recognised and treated and that's denied, it becomes PTSD. And if that becomes denied and not treated and recognised, it becomes suicide. That's the cold hard facts. And I really don't want to spend another night, four hours on the phone, to someone I've never met in my life. I've only reached out, it's only reached out to me some avenues. So I've never actually spoke to this person in my life. I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. And speak to them for four hours, not because I want to speak to them for four hours, it's because I know that if I don't speak to them for four hours, they won't be there the next time they call. I'm just an ordinary guy from the East End. I'm not being given the skills, the expertise, the training for this kind of thing. I'm not even going to be given the skills, training, and expertise for me to cope with this myself. But I would refuse to allow a single human being to go through any of what happened through alone. Because I did go through this alone for over a year. On my own, screaming, dealing with everything you can imagine. And that, that's hard. That's very hard. It's a dark place to be. And if I can stop one person being in that dark place, then I'm quite happy to sit for four hours on the phone, if that makes any sense. I'm not making myself anything special, Johnny. I'm not. I'm just an ordinary guy for East End working class guy who was just brought up to try and do the right thing. And I just don't want anybody to be in the place I was. So that's kind of how London came about. It was 
they attended, I want to say that the numbers are anywhere, guess anywhere between 1,000 and 4,000. It was a silent protest from the BBC's head office. We set up a, a stage and a 40 square, square meter, 40 meter square TV screen at the BBC and they didn't even acknowledge that they were there. We then did a, a silent protest where we walked down Regent Street, Trafalgar Square, to Downing Street. And that is probably the most poignant, powerful thing I've ever done. And I've seen the images of it. The people in London were devastated. You could see the people in the crowd. People were crying when they, they realised these people have been damaged by these vaccines. How do we not know about this? And that's what we're trying to do. Raise awareness that we are a problem that's not going away. Yeah, well, I, I hope that that, um, that, you know, March did definitely raise some awareness because, yeah, what else can you do? You know, the, the media ignores these stories, you know, in fact, not only ignores them, but as you said, with that Rolling Stone article, you know, they might just... Uh, choose to actually ridicule people you know so the only way you can do this is i think just by a, a, a grassroots you know person to person on an individual basis go out there and talk to people in the real world and you know it sounds like that's what you've done with the protest and there's more coming up so you know i definitely hope that they they have the desired impact and um you know i just want to say to yourself alex you know like you know you've shown like such a huge amount of courage and you know um the way that you've kind of approached this and kind of dealt with your own vaccine injury and then kind of, you know, I guess use that as fuel or it seems to me like you've used that as fuel for your own, um, for your own battle going forward now, which is to, to get justice for the vaccine injured. You know, I think that you, you know, it's really inspiring to see that you've done that. And I know that you are an inspiration to a lot of people, especially the vaccine injured, but, but not just the vaccine injured, you know, I think that that translates to, um, different people in, in different um, aspects of life anyway, you know, just showing that kind of resiliency in the face of adversity is really inspiring. So, uh, you know, kind of keep keep doing what you're doing and, you know, huge kind of respect to yourself for that. Thank I just you. want to give you the opportunity to give any... Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I think we're, we're, we're at a stage now where, where that, honestly, we're at a crux of humanity it doesn't matter who got this who didn't get it why they got it why they didn't get it I think we're, we're now beyond that we're now at a stage where large sections of our societies are in trouble and we need to come together to try and resolve it are we going to save everyone no we're not sadly I know I'm not going to, we can't save everyone and I can't take that on my head, if that makes any sense, because I can't take every suicide on my head either. But I can certainly raise awareness of them and let people know not only is some of your actions, your reactions and your words have a very, very big impact on some people. Just be careful what you're saying to people. And I think we need to be very careful because what's going to come out over the next two years of the level of propaganda, the lies, the manipulation of the data and the stats, 
a lot of people are going to be in a very bad place because most people don't think a government and a health industry would do any of these things, never mind the level of some of them. I hope this brings it all down and we start again because the medical system's screwed. The medical system that we now have is we've got doctors being trained by an organisation sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. I'm sorry, there's a clear conflict of interest. All these things need to be resolved. I think we've realised that see every surface of scratch, be under it as a cesspit of ineptitude, corruption, or stuff going nowhere. You know, you go follow a process and there's no process. And I think that's the biggest argument for me. You set all this up, you got these things prepared, you said they were safe and effective, you logistically created them, rolled them out, did it by age group, could tell by letter who had one, two or three a booster. You could do all that incredible work. And given the fact that you knew there was going to be a higher risk because you developed these at a higher rate, you intelligently forgot to do anything about, well, now that we know it's going to go wrong more often than normal, what will we do to negate that? And the simple fact is nothing. And I've said this for 18 months, and I've said it in newspapers, live TV, everywhere. And I've yet to have one single official statement to deny that claim I've just made. So therefore, I'm right. Because believe me, these people take every opportunity to tell me where I've gone wrong. So the fact that they knew it was they did nothing tells me this is more nefarious than it is health-related. Yep. And, you know, I agree with what you say there in terms of you know, we have kind of just seen, I, I think that this was almost the straw that broke the camel's back in a way. You know, I, I think that this has been going on for a while. There's been a lot of kind of, I, I guess, just um, corruption, you know, in, in medicine, in government, in in all of these things, these mm. kind of vested interests. And I think that this has kind of really brought things to a head. Yeah, we go back the last 60 years, just in its own, all the way from thalidomide to these it's just been this cycle of a product causing problems and I'm ignoring it, denying it and eventually accepting it 10 years down the road. Haemophilia, AIDS, all the, you know, it goes on and on and on. So 60 years have shown that these people cannot be trusted and should not be trusted. And you're right, this is the, the one that's brought the camels by. Yeah. And we've got to make sure that camel's never put together again. Totally. And I, and I think this is happening in, in a lot of different areas, but now, you know, because it, it doesn't, it, it's not only in medicine as well. You know, I noticed that this is happening in media, you know, the fact that the media aren't talking about these things. We have to, we, we, I don't think we can correct these institutions. I think that now we have to just build new ones. And, you know, we have to just say, okay, if you're not going to talk about real things, if you're not going to tell the truth, you know, it, however that looks in that particular industry, then we just say, okay, well, we'll build our own. We'll do something different. And I, and I see this happening. And this is what ultimately gives me optimism even though we've gone through this very kind of like dark time in history i think that we finally got to the point where people are willing to 
take action and say, no, like no more of this. Like we're, we're just going to completely opt out of these systems. And, you know, that's kind of what, what my podcast is about. So even though my podcast is the staying free podcast, it's mm. a freedom podcast is about, you know, it's about how we can, how we can live free, but all of these things kind of feed into it because ultimately these are clues or these are kind of just signals that we need change in this area. And, you know, obviously for, for what's happened with the vaccines and things, it's not something I talk about a huge amount because I don't really look into the data and I don't want to kind of get things wrong or misrepresent things. But ultimately, my belief is, you know, this is a sign that these institutions are corrupt and that we need to properly decentralize, give people, you know, proper bodily autonomy, you know, actually start respecting things like, um, you know, medical freedom again. Uh, it all comes down to this. So, Thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. I just want to give you uh, the opportunity to just give any kind of links to where people can find you, any kind of campaigns that are going on, and then just any final thoughts you want to leave for my audience as well. So the likely place you'll find me is on Twitter, and that's Alpha Kilo Echo, AKD2306, or Alex Mitchell. I'm not hard to find. I'm the guy in the scooter with one leg. You can always find me. Any my anything I'm doing tends to be put on through there. Um, campaigns. There's not really anything I can talk about at the moment. There is some other stuff we can plan. Um, hopefully, in the next three four weeks, we can announce what that plan is if we can get it to come together. I, the only thing I would finish on is that there's a lot of people in a dark place. And they feel as if they've got nothing left. And I always say, you don't know how strong you are. So strong is all you've got. Everyone who's got this pot of inside them, we've all got it. But you don't know how strong you are till you find it. Go and get inside pot of gold, because it's there. We've all got it. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Thank you.